Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI 10-minute lesson series aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations of past events. And our SJI interview series, where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. This week, we're joined by Paul Dornan and Sinead McGarrigal, both solicitors working at Mercy Law Resource Centre. And they're going to talk to me about the findings in a new report they published recently called Minority Groups and Housing Services Barriers to Access. Thank you very much to Paul and Sinead from Mercy Law Resource Centre for joining me today. I suppose the first thing is maybe just to explain to listeners, either or one of you, what Mercy Law Resource Centre is, how did it come about, what does it do, what's its mission statement? There's a lot there, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Suzanne, for having us, uh, having us on today. So the Mercy Law Resource Centre is an independent law centre and registered charity that was established in 2009. So we've been going for some time now. And our core service is the provision of free legal advice and representation to people who are homeless or who are facing homelessness. Um, so we provide free legal advice through outreach clinics, I suppose, pre-COVID. Um, but at the moment, the service is provided um, 100% over telephone. You know, we take calls from the greater Dublin area primarily. That, that was the focus mm-hmm. at the beginning. But what we've noticed, especially during COVID, is that calls are coming in from all over the country. Okay. And, you know, we do, we do offer a service, a, a legal advice service nationwide. So we're happy to take those calls and, and we are seeing an increase. And then, you know, we, we offer legal representation based on, based on the initial advice. And if we feel that we can take the case forward and advocate on behalf of the person, and if needs be, proceed to litigation. But we also offer some additional services that so we undertake policy work. And our policy work is advocating to bring about change in laws and policies that affect our client base. And I think we're going to probably chat a little bit about some of the policy work that mm-hmm. we're involved in a bit later. Um, we also provide training to organizations on housing and related social welfare. And we offer a befriending service. So we recruit volunteers to offer practical and practical support and emotional support to some of our clients. If there's no live legal issue, or even if there is, and they just require, you know, a bit of extra time for somebody to sit down with them, maybe have a telephone call with them every week or so, just to see how they're getting on and to help them with, um, you know, navigate the system sometimes Mm -hmm. and help them fill out forms and other kind of practical bits that you know we just wouldn't have the time to do an important part of uh, an important part of mercy law is our ethos so we recognize the dignity of each person you know the the client is at the core of the service and we seek to ensure that all people are treated with respect and compassion and um, we're quite a small organization we only have four full-time staff including three solicitors and two part-time staff and we also have a number of really great and dedicated volunteers as well. So, so that's basically Mercy Law in a nutshell. You're right. I mean, this conversation is prompted by your recent report, the Minority Groups and Housing Services Barriers to Access. So what prompted you to actually gather 
that all together into, into, into one cohesive report. Yeah, so the report grew out of what we've seen in our in our casework. So, so in the context or in the course of our work, and particularly since two thousand and fifteen, Mercy Law has noted an increasing number of individuals um, and families from minority groups accessing our service. So, we've taken this to include Irish nationals who are of ethnic minority and non-Irish nationals from both EU and non-EU countries. So we've provided legal advice and representations to members of the traveller community and the Roma community who have presented with the most acute and urgent legal issues. And as of October 2020, 65% of our clients um, to whom we've provided providing legal representation were from minority groups. So the report is based on our extensive casework experience working with families and individuals from minority groups. So it includes our own analysis of the legal framework that applies to issues of housing and homelessness in Ireland based on our wide-ranging experience and expertise in that niche area. So for the purposes of the report, as I sort of said there, minority groups include non-white Irish and encompasses non-Irish nationals, naturalised Irish nationals, members of the traveller community and those of Roma ethnicity. What we sort of seek to examine in the report is some of the specific policy and legislative barriers that, that we feel have contributed to some of the sort of alarming statistics around the numbers uh, in who are homeless and the, the sort of the, the makeup of those numbers. And I might go back um, and highlight some of those numbers to you in a minute, Suzanne, if that's OK. I was, I was just jotting down <laughs> a few actually even before we chatted. So the proportions are are out of whack really aren't they in terms of, of who's presenting yeah yeah, yeah so um so I suppose the, the data we have on it is is quite stark um so in a 2018 study jointly conducted by the irish human rights and equality commission and the economic and social research institute it was found that black people in ireland are five times more likely to report housing discrimination than white people the same study also found that non-white irish nationals are 1.7 times more likely to experience housing deprivation than Irish nationals and two and a half times more likely to live in overcrowded housing. And then a Dublin Region Homeless Executive report found that 33% of families entering into homelessness in 2017 were headed by a non-Irish national. So this compares unfavourably with the fact that non-nationals make up 11.6% of the general population. And there are similarly disquieting figures when we examine issues faced by uh, traveller and Roma families. So the 2018 joint uh, IREC and ERSI study that I mentioned there found that while travellers make up less than 1% of the general population, they make up 9% of the homeless population. And another study from 2018 jointly conducted by Pavi Point and the Department of Justice found that 6% of the Roma population was homeless and that almost 45% had had a previous experience of homelessness. Now, these are numbers going back to 2018, but you would fear that if similar studies were carried out today, that they might have similar findings. So the numbers are, they are quite stark. And those are the sorts of numbers that, that are broadly replicated within the you know within our service and what we see as I was sort of saying there, sixty five percent of the clients to whom we provided services, or sorry legal representation at the back end of twenty twenty were from a minority background. Um, yeah, so it is it's quite shocking. So it, it was it was that particular circular that's being used as part of the housing assessment process that seems to be a 
a stumbling block or a sticking point in, in how it's being interpreted for non-nationals. Is that correct? Have I got that right? It's certainly one of the issues that the report highlights. So I suppose we broke the report down into a number of different issues. Um, I suppose there are specific policy and legislative barriers that we feel have contributed to these numbers and disproportionately impact on those from a minority background. So yes, as, as you mentioned there, housing circular 41 of 2012 is one of them. Then what we see is the normal residency and local connection tests under the social housing assessment regulations. Then we have another potential barrier in the alternative accommodation test applied under the social housing assessment regulations. And then we'd see well-publicized um, issues with regards to the form and provision of emergency accommodation. So maybe just to, to start then with uh, housing circular 41 of yeah. 2012. Um, so yeah, so this is a circular issued by the Department of Housing Planning and Local Government, as it was called then in December 2012 to all housing authorities in the state to provide advice when considering whether to accept an application for social housing support from a non-Irish national. So under the Housing Act 2009, housing authorities are empowered to provide social housing subject to an eligibility assessment. Um, and the specifics of this assessment were expanded upon in the social housing assessment regulations 2011. And then the purpose of the circular is to provide further advice to housing authorities, specifically on applications for social housing support by non-Irish nationals. What we've identified as um, issues with the circular, I suppose they're, they're two broad issues and they're interlinked. The first is that um, the circular isn't always up to date with regards to the uh, immigration laws that applies to Ireland. And then the second sort of interlinked issue is that its legal status is, is slightly unclear. I suppose the issues with the with it sort of not being up to date might not be as as consequential for for in for applicants if it wasn't being applied inflexibly in the sort of manner of, of almost primary legislation by, by housing authorities. So if somebody arrives for assessment with a status that's not explicitly set out. So as you said, a lot's changed between 2012 and 2020 in terms of mm -hmm. different stamps and different leaves of stay. And that's okay if it wasn't, if it was, you know, if there was still flexibility in how people were reading that circular. So it's the two things overlapping together that are causing this stumbling block. You're not on the list. Your name's not down. You're not coming in. End of. Yeah, like exactly. 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 And um, I suppose housing authorities may have a degree of discretion when it comes to their application or when it comes to assessing mm -hmm. um, social housing applications. But oftentimes when it comes to issues around the circular, they're, they're not exercising that okay. discretion. Okay, so they're, they're using the circular as it says here that I can't process your application, even though there is discretion, it's being used as, a, well, look, sorry, nothing I can do. Mm, and I think, yeah, at the launch of, a, of the report, Minister Joe O'Brien, actually, I think he described it as, as acting as a block um, for people. Um, so so, so that's, <laughs> that's how we've seen it applied in okay. practice. So rather than a guidance tool um, that it, local authorities can can use supplemented by proper training they are maybe just then saying okay well you don't fit neatly into the, the box so sorry no and I was just going to maybe give an example um, of cases that we see coming in quite regularly 
relating to EU nationals. So under the circular, EU nationals have to have worked 52 weeks in the state Mm -hmm. and be able to prove that. But obviously, you know, circumstances change. And what we see a lot of the time is in cases of relationship breakdown, where one spouse is working, the other wasn't. Um, the relationship breaks down for for whatever reason and the spouse who wasn't working tries to um, apply to the local authority to get on the housing list and they're refused because they don't have the 52 weeks um, worked up in the state. Now there's nothing in there's nothing in law to say that they shouldn't be entitled to that and, and it is you know that the circular is based on outdated laws but but that's an example of the type of case we'd see and the inflexibility that that results. But the other thing is you really so like you know looking at there are certain communities that you know any anybody with a nomadic culture is also negatively impacted by this very specific list of things that you must be able to prove and things that you must be able to show if it's part of your culture to move around a lot and then you need to pro, you know you need to provide kind of a, a local link that's very very difficult um, I mean that that crops up a lot in your work as well I think doesn't it we would see that again, yeah. So again, it touches on issues relating to the social housing assessment regulations, twenty eleven. And so, in order to qualify to go on the housing list, you need to prove that you are normally resident within a local authorities' functional area. And if you can't prove that you're normally resident, then you need to establish a local connection. And so, unhelpfully, under the regulations there is no definition of what being normally resident actually means so you could sorry I suppose in the experience of mercy law that this would disproportionately affect traveler applicants who are seeking to access social housing particularly those residing in caravans who who may have a nomadic lifestyle and so it's what are the the sort of requirements for establishing a normal residency in a local authority which we just don't really know and so if if you can't then establish a normal residency then the fallback is to try and establish this this local connection and there are sort of a number of criteria which although they may be well-meaning in 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 and being said, I suppose the idea is that not they're trying to share the burden of uh, provision for social housing around the country and not just in, I suppose, highly populated areas, areas of need like, like Dublin or Cork. But so the, I suppose the criteria are, um, so household members resided for a continuous five-year period at any time in the area concerned. The place employment of a household member is in the area concerned or is located within 15 kilometers of the area, or then a household member is in full-time education, or then a household member with an enduring physical sensory or mental mental health or intellectual impairment is it, impairment is attending a medical or residential establishment in the area concerned that has facilities or services specifically related to such impairment. Or then finally, a relative of a household member resides in the area concerned and has resided there for a minimum period of two years. And you can see how those, if you are from a nomadic background, how you may not be able to meet some of those criteria. So you're, you're automatically maybe excluded then from maybe both the, the normal residency and you may not be able to then meet the, the local connection test either. Now that's where there is a sort of fallback that under the social housing regulations as well, whereby um, local authorities still have a, can use a discretion to, to conduct an assessment. And I suppose we would be seeking to urge them to do so for 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 those um i suppose 
largely um, maybe migrants or or people from from the traveler community community with a nomadic lifestyle, especially where I suppose under the the sort of recognition of, of traveler ethnicity, a nomadic li- lifestyle is recognised yeah. under that, and and it would be you don't want the I suppose the the housing sort of legislative regime to be at variance with the the objectives of of uh, of uh, the ethnic minority recognition, you know. I suppose always advocating that housing officers in the local authorities are are properly trained in and around using their discretion here, so as to ensure that um, that migrant groups or minority groups, travellers, etc., aren't being unfairly treated um, in the application of the, of the housing assessment regulations, um, and then also in the the any assessment for homelessness as well. That's the thing. In the event of an unsuccessful housing or social housing support assessment the alternative is homelessness what we've seen is where somebody has maybe not satisfied the criteria for the social housing assessment and they then do seek homeless services on and or seek present as homeless mm. under the housing act 1988 and seek to access um, emergency accommodation how then that is being treated by the the relevant housing body or local authority okay. in the provision of it and whether or not and we've seen some examples of local authorities being i suppose reluctant to provide people with emergency accommodation where they're not on the social housing list or don't have a social housing okay. application in be in transit i suppose Okay, so you're you're completely you've slipped through two safety nets then. Yeah, and and then you know you have no option other than sleep rough. Yeah, mm-hmm. which uh, I mean you know for for a single individual is tough, but as you said, for families that's yeah. Uh, then this this was a particular issue around last summer, okay. where we did we did a number of cases of families or a number of reports of families. And not being able to access emergency accommodation, whether they were being refused or whether they just weren't um, getting a decision from the local authority. Um, and we did hear reports of families sleeping rough in parks and in cars. And this is partly in response to COVID because what, what they used to provide was a one night only service mm-hmm. where DRHE or, or whatever local authority it is would book the family in on a one night um, one night basis and then they'd have to leave the accommodation the next day and, and ring up and, and book again. Um, but because that service terminated due to COVID, there was no humanitarian response available. Okay. Um, so what, the, what we found the, the local authorities were doing was they were applying the local connection test when assessing people for homelessness, which, you know, there's, there's no legal basis for that. So, so Paul was involved in those cases and had quite successful outcomes. Okay. okay. When I deal with professionals, I presume that they know best. So when I go to the doctor mm-hmm. or the dentist or a solicitor and they say to me that tooth needs to come out, you, you need to write your will, this is how you do it. I always presume that I'm with somebody who knows more than I do and I trust them. So when I'm in front of a look, and as you said, people are people are doing the, the best that they can. But if I'm refused social housing support or if I'm refused emergency accommodation based on 
X, Y, and Z, I presume that that's correct and that I have no business questioning it. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of conscious, like, how do people even, how do people even arrive at your door? How do they know that you're there and that they can question these things? That's like a really good question, Suzanne, and there's <laughs> a topic that like we, we think about quite a lot here. So I suppose, I mean, just to give a, a sort of sense as to maybe what you'd be faced with when you are presenting as homeless. So you arrive, maybe you're a recent enough arrival in the state, you might have limited English proficiency. Sometimes literacy rates would be quite low among our clients. You might have a, a families, often large families. So you're trying to establish some children in school. And so that's always like a primary concern for clients. You may be also facing issues getting PPS number. Also, like maybe there might be some issues around getting and employment so then you've you've you're taking all that sort of those background issues when you when you're going to your social uh, or assessment for homelessness and you're expected i suppose to be able to communicate the, the, all of these things with the um i suppose the the officer there and often possibly in, in a second language you know and um, so that 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 can be quite a bit a barrier for people so we would see referrals through other organizations such as Focus Ireland or Crosscare, who maybe have been linked in with individuals at a, a sort of an earlier basis, and they might have done some of the advocacy work around maybe trying to get somebody into emergency accommodation or to deal with some social welfare issues for people. And then if they see maybe like a legal issue or a, a problem with somebody's application, then they could refer them refer them on to us. So that would be one thing. Um, and I suppose it does require quite a lot of sort of work on our behalf to be in a sort of agile service that can respond to people's needs like urgently as, as they arise and our, the links that we've created with other organizations such as Crosscare, Focus Ireland, our Exchange House Ireland as well. But I suppose we're operating in a void where there's there's not really um, much recourse for, for somebody under the, the civil legal aid scheme. So, so we have I suppose it's housing is is an issue that wouldn't normally be um, be dealt with under 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 legal aid. Um, so I suppose we, we we have to be there to kind of meet that need. Yeah. I mean, can, can you can you give me a flavour? I know in the in the report, some of the case studies were very very powerful. Can you, off the top of your heads now? I mean, I, I'm throwing this one at you. Can you give me a flavour maybe of one or two of your sort of successful case studies? Yes. Um, so I assisted, it was a, a family of eight who were non-Irish nationals and they were being, it was a sort of two distinct but related issues. One was the suitability of their provision of emergency accommodation. And then the second was their access to the social housing list. So they were a large family um, and they were on, I suppose it was a, a night to night accommodation. Okay they had to leave the accommodation in the morning and they were only able to, to return to it in, in the evening. And they'd been placed on that for a, for a number of months. And the, the mother of the family, she was pregnant during this time. And then she had the baby and was discharged from the maternity hospital back into this night-to-night accommodation. Now, it was this the same accommodation largely that the family stayed in, but they didn't have access to, to it during the day. And this was against the advice of, of 
doctors and, and public health officials, naturally. Um, so, um, but the, the local authority weren't minded to provide them with more stable emergency accommodation. So we, we made efforts to try and resolve it with the local authority. But as I said, they, they weren't minded to provide them with a more stable form. So we issued uh, judicial review proceedings against the decision not to provide them with more suitable emergency accommodation. Now that ended up settling um, and the family were then placed in, in a a sort of more stable booking where they had 24-hour access. But I suppose along parallel to that, then there were delays, first of all, in deciding whether or not they were eligible to go on the social housing list. And then it was eventually decided by the local authority that they they weren't, they didn't have a local connection to the, to the authorities' functional areas. Now, we challenged this, arguing that the father of the family worked as a contract worker consistently within the functional area of the local authority from, from the date in which they submitted their housing needs assessment form. So we provided pay slips and supported this and made submissions when we couldn't resolve the matter informally. So we we argued that the housing authority's decision amounted to an error of law and fact and a breach of the family's right to fair procedures. So we we argued that it was the, it was clearly established that there was a local connection through the father's employment, and then we said like even in, above this, like if even if you don't accept that there is the family do have a local connection, um, you you can still use it use your discretion to conduct a social housing assessment under. Article 5C of the Social Housing Regulations 2011. And we said that was be especially relevant in this case where, where the local authority had already been providing them with emergency accommodation for a number of months. So thankfully, that then result, the, the local authority were then minded to accept the, the family onto the social housing list. Um, and their time was backdated to when they made their, their application. But it was a a very long road to, to A, get them suitable emergency accommodation and then B, get them onto the housing list. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to have to pack up everything you own every single morning, drag it around town with you all day with kids and being pregnant and a baby. Yeah. And that's just... That we, when we were talking to to the mother of the family, she described, um, you know, taking shelter in shopping centres and and using shopping centres to and parks and um, to feed her her you know infant child, and it was just it was it was heartbreaking. I mean, the other thing you mentioned at the beginning, uh, no alternative accommodation, and that non-nationals were having to go through hoops to prove that they didn't own accommodation anywhere else, and that this wasn't something that. Irish nationals weren't being asked to prove that they didn't have accommodation elsewhere or not to the same length. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so that, that's another issue that we see um, as affecting people from minority background. And, and but I suppose it's very rare that you would see it um, affecting an Irish national. Okay. Um, outside I suppose the the context of a relationship breakdown yeah. and on a family home maybe having to to be assessed so we would see non-Irish nationals being asked by local authorities to evidence non-ownership of property abroad and there's frequently requested uh, uh, what the, what local authorities call an affidavit to state that there is no that the applicant doesn't own a property abroad 
it should properly be termed as a statutory declaration. But what um, I suppose we find is that even though there's a box on the social housing needs assessment form that says, do you own any other property and, and people tick it, tick no, then if we would see then a non-Irish national may then be asked for additional evidence then to prove that they don't own a property anywhere else, um, which can be difficult to prove. Yeah. Um, I suppose if you, if you think about it in an Irish context, how would you go about proving that you don't own a house the somewhere? Of yeah, yeah, I don't you think you can look that up on the the land registry you know but even yeah. that's not accessed like people don't have public access to that so you, there's a price mm. you need to you need to pay to access that's the awesome. land registry mm-hmm. you also need to pay for a stat deck so you also need to pay yeah. for an affidavit or a statutory declaration you also need to have up-to-date id to be able to do either of those things so if you're somebody without a valid passport without a valid driver's license you can't even do that Exactly. These are all barriers yeah. um, and obstacles in the way. And there's also a, a possibility that local authorities might be asking for these affidavits are potentially even acting ultra vires by imposing a new criteria on their non-Irish nationals. Right. Um, yeah. so, so it is problematic. But I suppose people are faced then with the, the sort of the, the legitimate housing needs. So rather than seek to to, I suppose, challenge the local authority over this, they'll simply sort of try and get uh, a form of affidavit statutory declaration just because it's easier. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think when you're faced with a, a choice of being right mm-hmm. or getting what you want, you're going to mm-hmm. go for what you want. So if I'm looking for housing support, I am going to jump through all the hoops in order to get that. That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah but. But you're right, yeah, it, I mean, it is a burden and it's a potential expense unless somebody is lucky enough to be linked in with a good support organisation yeah. or maybe to contact an organisation like ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's good. focus of this particular report was on minority groups, but a lot of your work is just housing in general and the, the, the right to a home, you know what I mean? That home is, and it's not housing, shelter doesn't do the same thing as a home. Shelter is simply that home is the foundation, I think, of all other rights. That's everything else grows from that, you know, being able to get a good night's sleep without being anxious, knowing that I don't have to get up in the morning and pack everything up and drag seven kids around town with me all day. That's what a home provides. And I know you're very, very uh, involved in the um, Home for Good Coalition. Can you, again, just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and you're right, Suzanne, you know, a home is kind of the basis of exercising all your other rights. Like, how are you supposed to exercise your right to earn a livelihood? You know, if you've no roof over your head, it's extremely difficult. So Mercy Law has been a longtime advocate for the right to housing to be included in the Irish constitution. Um, I suppose we witness in, in our everyday work, the limitations and the extent that the law can actually assist with housing cases in the absence of a right to housing. So we kind of look at the laws around the fringes of the issues, and that's what we're relying on. So whether it's children's rights or rights to fair procedures, um, because there is no right to housing. So, for example, if a local authority refuses a family um, emergency accommodation, 
you know, there's no obligation on the state or on the local authority to actually provide the emergency accommodation. So we have to then consider, well, has the local authority complied with fair procedures? Are there children involved? Have they considered, you know, all of the circumstances of the case and um, to try, try to make out a case in those limited circumstances? So as you said, as, as part of our work on the right to housing, we're um, a member of the Home for Good Coalition, which is a coalition of organisations working in the area of housing and homelessness. So it includes Folks Ireland, the Simon Community, Respond Housing, Threshold, and a number of interested individuals and academics and professionals as well. And what we're calling for is the inclusion of a right to standalone housing, to, sorry, a standalone right to housing in the constitution. What we see as a starting point of every legal an analysis is from the perspective of property right holders because property rights are protected in the constitution. And we've seen time and time again, successive governments block um, progressive housing reform and legislation on the basis of private property and in those protections in the constitution. So what we need is, an, is a right to housing to, to balance those private property rights, to open up that policy space to allow the legislature and the executive to make the decisions which can really make a change to housing and the housing crisis. That's the thing. And I think people can sometimes confuse a right to housing with an automatic, here's a house. But what it would be, as you said, would be that as, as laws are enacted, as legislation is drafted, as circulars are, are written, that a right to housing is underpins them. That, as you said, the, the first thing then that a circular, a housing circular should do should be based on somebody's right to housing. Yeah, exactly. And what we envisage is a right to access housing yes. and, you know, adequate housing as well that, that takes into account security and appropriateness. But you know it is it is quite different to just getting a free home like yeah, that, yeah. That, that's not what we're saying <laughs> no. you know we we want to open up the policy space and for future legislation that comes in to actually consider this right mm. but but we also do propose that you know that the right to housing contains a positive duty on the state to realize access to housing for all so that that is ultimately the end goal but, you know, it'll be tailored to people's needs and what's actually required in the circumstances. And obviously, available resources will need to be taken into account as well, um, because, because obviously that's, that's a consideration in any kind of socioeconomic right. Mm -hmm. so, so all of those things, you know, combined would make a difference. Obviously, including the right to housing in the Constitution isn't going to solve the housing crisis overnight. It's not a silver bullet but we feel it is a starting point to free up that, that policy space and, and to make real change. Is there anything that, because I think I've probably kept you there for quite, quite some time, is there anything that you kind of want to make a, a sort of final point or anything that we haven't touched on? Um, at your launch that you mentioned time limits on families spending, you know, 
time in, a, in emergency accommodation. So that reflects um, a longstanding calls that, that we've made for as well. So it's to try and, or we've called on the Minister for Housing to, to make regulations under Section 10 of the Housing Act 1988 around the forms of emergency accommodation that, that people can be eligible for, particularly families and the, the time limits that they, that they could spend there. And um, so it was nice to see that uh, that yourselves were, were calling for that as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.